And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there is that repetition that you see in the Bible around that word holy. And the Bible does that because in Hebrew, there's no exclamation mark. There's no bold face. But rather, to emphasize something, you repeat it. We do the same thing in English, right? In English, to emphasize something, you repeat it. In English, to emphasize something, you repeat it. See what I did there? So there's that picture of God's holiness throughout Scripture. Now, it's interesting. You don't find in Scripture, God is love, love, love. You don't see God is justice, justice, justice. The emphasis, that threefold emphasis, falls upon the idea of his holiness, his otherliness. So in Scripture, God's holiness is unbelievably important. And you see it, for example, in that threefold repetition, holy, holy, holy. But there's another way that you can see God's holiness. And actually, we're going to see it today, but you might miss it. Because God's holiness is emphasized today, not so much when we zoom in and look at words specifically, but rather when we zoom out and see the big picture. Today we are about halfway through our series on Leviticus. The 10-week series, we're in week 5, and thematically we're in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is, the, is in the middle of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that's important because of this word, this, this motif that's often found in Hebrew literature called chiasm. Chiasm is where you have an idea, idea A, you have an idea, idea B, and then you have an idea, idea C, then you come back to idea B, and you come back to idea A, and you structure it this way to emphasize that central idea. It builds up A, B, C, B. So think about this. Thematically, we're in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is in the middle of the Pentateuch. In other words, we are at that middle of the middle, the first five books of the Bible. In other words, this is really important. Whatever we find in Leviticus 16 is unbelievably important because not only thematically is it at the center, that chiastic C, if you remember the diagram, of the book of Leviticus, it's at the center of the center of the center book in the Pentateuch. And what is Leviticus 16 about? It's about God's holiness. So that's another way we see the holiness of God being emphasized. Yes, you see it in specific scriptures and texts, like Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. But you also see it when you zoom out and you think about where we're at now in the narrative arc of scripture. We're at that center point of the first five books of the Bible. And we're going to see the holiness of God specifically expressed in the Day of Atonement. Now, with that said, I would not blame you if you're like, oh, we're only halfway through the book of Leviticus. This is such a long week. Seriously? I would not be surprised if you're like, oh, holiness every week. We talk about God's holiness. We talk about sacrifice. We talk about Jesus. I would not fault you if you feel like, okay, yes, it's important. God's holiness is important in the Bible. God's holiness is, is important in Leviticus 16. But I'm kind of tired of it. And knowing that, I thought, ah, oh, this week, how can I help cultivate a sense of, of the weight of holiness? How do we keep this fresh? And I had this passing thought. 
Maybe we could cultivate a sense of the divine, a sense of the weight of God's glory, a sense of holiness by renting a couple smoke machines and installing some subwoofers on everybody's chair so that we kind of feel the weight of God's holiness. We can change the atmosphere. Ironically, that would feel kind of gimmicky and faddish, which would go against the sense of holiness. I mean, holiness has a sense of weight, of eter- eternality, whereas if we just kind of employed some tricks and techniques, that would feel kind of mm, cheap. So we're actually not going to do that. Rather, here's what we're going to do. I, I came across this quote about this book that's coming out, and it reminded me of where we need to go. The quote is this about this book that's forthcoming. He writes, The main point is that the church drifts not when new errors start to win, but here it is, when old, when old truths no longer wow. Like we need to go back to some of these old truths that we're seeing here. So here's my, my method of operation this morning. How are we going to try to convey the sense of God's holiness? It's not a trick, it's not a technique, it's not a fad, it's not a gimmick. All I'm going to do is kind of go through the scriptures, unfold them, and trust that God, through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to give you a sense of his holiness. So we're just going to go back and look at these old truths, and hopefully God will, by his grace, through the Spirit, by the power of the word, help you feel the weight, something of the weight of God's holiness. With that, we're going to go look at Leviticus chapter 16. It's on page 99 of the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. So in Leviticus 16, we actually read the first couple of verses already. We're going to read them one more time because I'm going to frame our walk through Leviticus 16 under three headings. And the first is this heading of place, like what's going on, where are we at, because that's actually super important for how the whole chapter unfolds. So let me just read this, and then we'll go back and make a few comments on Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2 again. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, a couple things here. First, did you notice the death motif here? Like three times in these just two verses, you have this death motif. And it's like intense because, again, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Like, wait, what? As a parent, for me, maybe for you as a parent or just you as a human, one of my greatest nightmares is that I would lose a child. But here we have this double nightmare that this is reference to Aaron lost both of his sons. And we're like, wait, what's going on here? Okay, fair question. Don't let this slide by because it kind of informs the vibe of chapter 16. So, yes, Aaron's sons died, and they actually died kind of recently. It's back in chapter 10. Let me just go back there briefly to show what happened and how they died. In Leviticus 10, Aaron's son Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So in other words, Aaron has these sons, they're ministering before the Lord, and they offer unauthorized fire. They did something that they weren't supposed to do. Fire comes out, and they die. So already, if we really read this text, we know what happened in Leviticus 10. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. These two sons die because they offer unauthorized fire. They minister in a way that God told them not to minister. And so already we're seeing 
that we ought not treat God lightly, particularly as a priest. You don't approach God unadvisedly. You don't just do it on your own whim. This is pretty heavy here. Actually, if you follow along in our Bible reading plan, do you remember 1 Chronicles 13? We just read it this week. It's something that happens later on in history, but it's something kind of similar. It's the story of Uzzah who touches the ark when it was getting, going to fall over. He dies too. Now, lest you think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing, right? We're in the New Testament now. Nobody dies. Do you remember the story, the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? Just briefly, Ananias and Sapphira, this is, you know, post-death and resurrection of Jesus, they come and they lie about money they're giving to the church, and guess what? They die. Like, this is heavy already. And we're like, wait, what is going on here? And there's a lot to talk about. But suffice it to say, for now, here's the vibe that we need to remember. God is holy, and we don't approach him on our own whims. We don't approach him with a cavalier. I'll just do it this way. I'll do it my way. It's fine. No, no, no. From the beginning here in chapter 16, we're reminded that you ought not approach God in a way that he has said not to approach him. In fact, in Acts 5, after Ananias and Sapphira die, Luke records, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. There's a sense of God's holiness, and they saw it because their friends, Ananias and Sapphira, lied before the Holy Spirit, and they died. So we, we're getting a sense of this, this weight of God's holiness. We ought not approach God just on our own whims. But the good news here in verse 2 is that at least God tells, the, particularly in this case, the high priest, he tells them how to approach him. He, he gives guidance for how you approach me so that you don't die. And specifically, what we're talking about today in the Day of Atonement is where the high priest, one man, goes into the most holy place one day a year. So here, we're talking about the tabernacle. Let me zoom in here. There's this place called the Holy of Holies. That's what we're talking about here. Nobody goes in here except one man, one day a year, in a very specific way. And that's what we're going to look at today. So here's the setting. Tabernacle, so where God meets with his people. He dwells with his people. Now we're going into the Holy of Holies, which is separated from the holy place by this curtain here. So that's the place, that's the context, that's the vibe here. God is holy, and we don't just waltz into his presence however we want. Let's keep going. Rather, there's a lot of preparation. Let's take a look at some of the preparation here. Uh, Verses 3 to 5, make some comments, and then we'll go to 6 to 10. So in 3 to 5, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So there's a lot there. Let me just parse it out, make sure we get what's happening here. So again, God says, you don't just waltz into my presence however you want. Most, uh, on the most holy day of the Day of Atonement, God says, here's how you come into my presence, uh, high priest. And there's kind of three things that happen here. One are these sacrifices. So he's going to talk about these sacrifices that need to be brought. We're going to come back to that. Number two, he's talking about these linen garments. These are simple clothes. These are not typically what he would wear. Many would suggest these are white clothes, which would indicate the purity with which one needs to have coming into the presence of God. And the third thing is you have to bathe yourself, again, indicating purity. Now, the text then goes into a little bit more detail about these sacrifices, and let's take a look at it now in verses 6 through 10. 
verse 6. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Verse 7. He is to, sorry, verse 7. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Verse 9. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. Verse 10. But the goat chosen by the lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So there's different types of sacrifice here. We don't want to miss these different types of sacrifice. So in verse 3, we see bring this young bull. And then in verse 6, we see this is a bull to atone for your own sacrifices, high priest. Okay? So he has to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. But then you see these goats. And there's two goats here. Now, these are the sins of the community, of the Israelite community. There's a sacrifice goat and there's a scapegoat. The sacrifice goat is to carry the sins of the people. You see more on that in verse 15. The scapegoat, there's this ritual where he will lay hands on the scapegoat, confess the sins of Israel, and then the scapegoat will be cast off into the wilderness, uh, carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, verse 23 there. See that idea of confession, kind of transferring the sins onto the scapegoat. So the bull is for himself. The two goats, one is a a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The other is a scapegoat. And the the sins are symbolically transferred to the scapegoat. And the scapegoat goes off into the wilderness. Those are the sacrifices. Those are necessary to atone for his own sin and the sins of the people. But there's one more aspect here. This is not a one and done thing. No, there's persistence. This happens over and over again every year. Verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed or ordained to succeed his father's high priest is to make atonement He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar and for the priest and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Did you hear that phrase that is repeated in there? The idea of it being a lasting ordinance comes across there. Because, it's, again, it's not one and done, but in verse 29, verse 31, and verse 34, there's this idea. It's a lasting ordinance. You do this over and over again every year. Once a year, but every year. So there's persistence here that has to happen. So we see the place, the most holy place. Once a year, this man goes in to atone for the sins of the of his people. You see the preparation that has to happen. Purity bound up here. Sacrifice to cover his sins and the sins of the people. And persistent over each year this is done. Now you know where this is going if you've been with us in our series of the book of Leviticus. The significance here, well, it all leads to Jesus being our day of atonement. But he's a better in all three areas that we discuss. Jesus is better in terms of place, he's better in terms of preparation, and he's better in terms of persistence. How so? Jesus enters a better place. For example, in Hebrews 9.24, 
the author of Hebrew makes this, op- this observation. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. No, no, no. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Even as we just sung, before the throne of God, we have a, a, one who's mediating for us, not just in an earthly tabernacle at the most holy place on earth, but rather in heaven itself. Jesus enters a better place. But not only that, Jesus enters not with the sacrifice of blood and goats, but his own blood. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And here's the point. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So in contrast that we saw here, remember the sacrifices? The high priest has to offer a bull first for his own sins, and then the goats are dealt with for the sins of the people. In contrast, Jesus doesn't have to do any of that because he is blameless, pure, and sinless. It's a better place. Uh, He comes in with, with no preparation because he has no sin to atone for himself. Finally, there's that picture in which it's not over and over again, once a year, but it's one and for all. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So do you see that picture here? Now, understanding Leviticus 16, understanding a little bit more of the most holy place, you can see, you can read, you can hear, and hopefully you can feel the weight of the book of Hebrews. How the author of Hebrews says Jesus is better. Yeah, he enters into a better place, heaven itself. He doesn't need any preparation, no elaborate rituals, because he himself has no sin. He goes directly into the most holy place in heaven. And further, he does this once. Just once, it's done, it's finished for all time, never to be done again because his sacrifice and his redemption, his atonement is final. Therefore, even as we sung earlier, we have confidence to enter uh, before God's presence to receive mercy, to find grace and our, to help us in our time of need. We have that confidence, but we also must enter with reverence. It's interesting, in the text, there is this vibe of, hey, you ought not enter God's presence just as you want, on your own whim, whenever you want, however you want. No, 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 no. God is still holy. We talked about that that first week. Like the holiness that you see here, he is still holy. He hasn't downgraded his holiness. And beyond that, the attitude that you see in the text here is still relevant. Did you notice in the final text that we read from Leviticus 16, there's this sense of, uh, there's this call to deny yourself, the text tells us, Leviticus 16.29, 16.31. So when you pair that together, hey, do not enter however you or whenever you want to, when you want, and also deny yourself. There's a sense of humility here. There ought to be reverence as we think about God. Again, think about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. There ought to be something of that even today with us. Like we walk this fine line, right? Clearly, the author of Hebrews invites us to come with confidence before the throne of grace. 
Yes, we can call God our Heavenly Father. But at the same time, we want to pair that with reverence, joy, worship, humility, self-denial before God as well. And that's a fine line to walk. Let me try to draw this together. I could talk about this holiness of God. How do, we, how do we embrace this? How do we feel this in our day and age? It seems so foreign. Like we get it here, you know, it's important. But how do we really evaluate whether we sense the weight of God's holiness? So let me ask you one question. And it's meant to be a diagnostic question, but also a uh, prescriptive question. Here's the question. I'll tell you why I'm asking this question in a moment. How do you speak about the holy God? Now, I'm asking a question of what your lips pour forth. Because in Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart, your, your mouth will speak. In other words, Jesus says, look, a great diagnostic to see where your heart is at, a heart scan, if you will, is just listen to how you're speaking. And so, in light of that, what's in your heart, which can be seen by how you speak, regarding the holiness of God? And let me kind of parse this out a little bit more. Let me give you a warning and a kind of an exhortation. It is, it is common, even amongst Christians, I think faithful, real Christians, to use God's name in a way that it ought not to be used. Like to use God's name in vain. Like it, it is so benign, seemingly benign in our culture to say, like, oh my, and then just drop God's name there. Like it's not even, that's not going to raise the, the level, the maturity level of a film. It's still going to be PG if you drop that. Now, other, other bombs you drop, you're going to get a higher rating. But that, you know, it's so like nobody even thinks about it, right? But hopefully you're seeing like the holiness of God calls us to, to, to live lives and have hearts that are calibrated such that we guard our lips from using God's name in vain. Okay, not as a way to earn God's grace, but rather in response to seeing uh, God's love towards us and having our eyes open to the holiness of God, which still is consistent as it was thousands of years ago. We want to be careful about how we use God's name, how it falls from our lips, because that reveals something about our hearts. And again, I get that's just totally countercultural. I get that that's not even like seen as bad in our culture. But if we're set apart, if we're holy ourselves following Jesus by his grace, how we speak about God ought to be unique as well. It should be kind of grating when you hear someone use God's name in vain. Kind of like that adage of, of, of you know, uh, wiping or, or scratching your nails across a chalkboard. Like, it's just to be so, not just cringe, but just like utterly cringeworthy. But the flip side of it is, if, okay, if we want to guard our lips from using God's name in vain, how then do we cultivate something better? Well, I think it's from the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father in heaven, here it is, hallowed be your name. Like, we want to be asking God, Lord, help me to hallow or keep holy your name. And I think that's a daily thing. Because I think the Lord's Prayer is meant to be something that daily shapes us. Because remember later on, give us this day our daily bread. And so every day we want to guard against using God's name in vain, but also praying, Lord, help me to hallow your name. Help me to keep your name holy with my life, with my lips. So hopefully, as you think about how are you speaking about God's name, that maybe there's some conviction there. Maybe you've got lacked with how you even speak about God's name. But hopefully at the same time, there's a sense in which you want to be living out the Lord's Prayer. Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And maybe this week you meditate on that. How can I hallow God's name? How can I keep it holy in my life? 
And so by God's grace, we have lips that hallow his name, but also lives as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you, by your grace, open our eyes, our hearts to your holiness, the weight of your glory, and would you then help us to respond accordingly, that we would, yes, through our lips, but also our lives as well, live a life that is holy unto you in what we do, what we think, what we say. Lord, help us to sense that you are holy, holy, holy. For this we pray in Jesus' name.